Schooled by Gordon Corman, Chapter 7, Name, Mrs. Donnelly. As Cap's caseworker, part of my job was to check in with the school from time to time to make sure he was doing well. That's how I wound up having lunch with Frank Kasigi, assistant principal at Claveridge Middle School. Oh, don't worry about Cap from an academic standpoint, he assured me. He's right up there with our brightest and best. Communer, no. He's been very well educated by someone. I thought of Rain and shuddered. Even after all these years, she'd always been the teacher at Garland. For someone who rejected all forms of authority, she was a major tyrant in the classroom. If she hadn't adopted the hippie lifestyle, she would have made a terrific marine drill sergeant. Then Mr. Kasigi let the other shoe drop. Yet socially, in my entire teaching career, I've never met a student who knows so little about ordinary everyday living. Have you worked with any other students from this Garland farm? <clears throat> Only one, I replied faintly. She had a very difficult adjustment. I didn't bother to mention that she was me. Adjustment is one thing, but Cap is like a space traveler who just landed on Earth and left his guidebook on the home world. Is it possible that he honestly believes bullfighting is a sport we play in middle school? Bullfighting? I repeated. How did that subject come up? His reply posed far more questions than it answered, apparently. Cap had asked about it as part of his duties as eighth grade president. Eighth grade president? How could a brand new student who didn't know a soul in the place get himself elected president? It made no sense to me. But later on, my 16-year-old daughter acted like it was the most obvious thing in the world. Duh! Eighth grade president isn't an honor, mother. It's like being an elected village idiot. Every year they pick the biggest wingnut in the building. It must have seemed like the freakazoid dropped straight from heaven to fill the post. I was horrified. Sophie, that's awful, she shrugged. What's really awful is that you're a social worker with power over kids' lives and you have no clue about what's common knowledge at that school. Did this happen when you were in eighth grade? Remember Caitlin Tortolo? She didn't really win a semester in Europe. She left school early to have a nervous breakdown. And you participated in it? Everyone did, she retorted. At least we did nothing to stop it. If you don't go along with the gag, you are next. I must have looked disapproving, because she added, Grow up, mother. The world's a big, tough, scary place. Like, you don't know that. Actually, I did know that. I didn't realize she knew it. I felt terrible for poor Cap. It was hard enough for him to come out of total isolation at Garland without having to be dropped into the snake pit that was middle school. Worse, I couldn't even warn him about it, not without poisoning his one and only experience of the real world. My sole consolation lay in the fact that he would have to suffer this abuse only for a few weeks more. His grandmother was recovering well. I'm sure he would have liked to visit her more often. But the facility was an hour away, more with traffic, and there just wasn't time to take him during the week. Anyway, deep in my heart, I believe that a genuine school, nasty and merciless as it could be, was still better than Garland Farm. Besides, nastiness was relative. After school, Cap had to come home to my house where Sophie was there to demonstrate the true meaning of nasty. She hated Cap Anderson with a passion that I wouldn't have believed her capable of, and I was her mother. Even when he did things that had nothing to do with Sophie, she took them personally. His wealthy, healthy vegetarian diet she considered a slap in the face to her own eating habits. His neatness was a deliberate ploy to make her appear messy. She couldn't bear that Cap woke up early to practice Tai Chi on our front lawn. But Sophie, I tried to reason, why would it matter to you? You're barely awake at that hour. 
It's humiliating, she raged. We might as well put a sign on the roof that says, warning, mutant on premises. The next morning, when Cap was performing the dance-like martial arts moves by the dogwood bushes, my darling daughter emptied an entire wastebasket full of water down on his head. This she followed with a string of language that would have set fire to the sidewalk, all from the girl who was so concerned about what the neighbors might think. He looked up at her and he smiled, instead of heaving a rock through her window, which is what I would have done. Oh, what a sight he was, with all that hair hanging limply around his shoulders. He looked like a weeping willow in soggy sandals. According to Sophie, the entire incident was my fault. By bringing Cap into our home, I had left her no choice but to take matters into her own hands. Since Sophie was never going to apologize to Cap, I did it myself. I'm so sorry, dear, I said, handing him a towel that wouldn't have dried one-tenth of his abundant hair. You have to forgive Sophie, although I can't think of a reason why. He looked sad. She doesn't like me. I smiled. Sixteen-year-old girls don't like anybody. His answer brought me straight back to my garland days. When you're unkind to others, it's usually because you don't believe that you yourself deserve kindness. Don't be so nice, I said. She can be pretty mean. In her defense, she's been through a lot in the last couple of weeks. Her father, my ex-husband, his heart's in the right place, but he makes a lot of promises he can't keep, and Sophie ends up caught in the middle. Just yesterday, she was waiting for him to pick her up for her first driving lesson. He never showed. That's him. Doesn't come, doesn't call, dead air. She won't admit it, but she's devastated. He looked thoughtful. I guess when you have a lot of people in your life, there's more of a chance that someone will let you down. I laughed. You're right, but it's a risk most of us are prepared to take. Cap looked dubious. He had grown up with exactly one person in his life, Rain, and regardless of what I thought of her, to him she had been as constant as the rising sun. How terrifying must it be to lose that. Chapter 8. Capricorn Anderson I really missed Rain. My whole life, whenever I got confused, there she'd be to explain it all to me. One time I remember we were in Rutherford, laying in the supply of tofu. We grew our own fruits and vegetables at Garland, but everything else had to be brought in from outside. Then we stopped at the hardware store to stock up on duct tape, which was just about the most useful thing on earth for a farm commune. It repaired roofs, walls, pipes, cars, furniture, and boots. At least a quarter of Garland was held together with the stuff. It made an instant cast for a broken finger and even pulled splinters out of your skin. Before I was born, when there were lots of young children growing up in the community, all those diapers used to be fastened by squares of duct tape. But when I, we got to the store, there was a group of people blocking the entrance. They were carrying signs and chanting. They seemed to be really angry about something. Rain explained that the employees were on strike, standing up for fair treatment. She thought it was an excellent idea. She refused to cross the picket line, so we drove 20 miles out of our way to buy our duct tape. We came back, though, and marched with the strikers for a couple of hours. Rain even let me unscrew the knobs to let the air out of the tires of the boss's car. Rain said the trip was the purest form of education, learning, by doing. I sure could have used that kind of wisdom now, with so much going on in my life and so many things I didn't understand. Like bullfighting. I asked Mrs. Donnelly about it, but the subject really seemed to bother her. She advised me to ignore anyone who mentioned it again. So I looked it up in the encyclopedia and I figured out why Mrs. Donnelly was so upset. Bullfighting is a cruel sport where innocent animals are tormented, tortured, killed, and have their ears cut off. 
I needed rain more than ever to ask her why a school would have anything to do with that, but she was out of the picture. This was a decision I would have to make on my own. And I did. The next time I saw Zach Powers, I put my foot down. I'm not going to ask Mr. Kaziggy about bullfighting anymore. I object to it on moral grounds. He said, I respect your honesty, and shook my hand. As he walked away, I noticed his shoulders shaking, overcome with emotion, I guess. I was beginning to see that growing up, knowing only one other person had some serious disadvantages. Without Rain as my mentor and guide, I was lost. The school made me dizzy. I spent half my time wandering the halls, asking people directions to rooms they'd never heard of. Students were constantly peppering me with questions I didn't have the answers to, and now a girl named Lorelei Lumley was writing me notes about how she'd love to run her fingers through my hair. Why would anyone want to do that? The closest thing I had to Rain was Hugh Winkleman, hardly a replacement, but at least he was willing to help. We ate lunch together every day, and I found himself, myself honestly looking forward to that regular meeting where Hugh could explain things to me. It's obvious, he said. She's in love with you. I don't even know who she is. I hadn't learned more than 15 or 20 names at that point. Hugh was disgusted. Typical. I've spent my whole life in this dumb town, and I've never gotten a girl to give me a second look. And here you have someone named Lorelei throwing herself at you. You can't let that slip through your fingers. Ask her to the Halloween dance. What's the Halloween dance? Only the most important social event of the school year. Not that I've ever been to one. His eyes narrowed. If you're eighth grade president, shouldn't you know about it? I hope not, I said worriedly. Hugh looked dubious. Well, you probably shouldn't go by me. I'm not exactly Mr. Popularity around here, but I think the president plans the whole shindig. Refreshments, decorations, music. Something tingled directly beneath the peace sign I wore around my neck. I was developing a sixth sense for when trouble was coming my way. But what good was advance warning? Advance warning of what? I wasn't going to understand it anyway. Maybe that was my mistake, even trying to understand. Garland was so simple, seven acres of land containing exactly one house, one barn, a vegetable garden, fruit trees, a pickup truck, and only one other person. Maybe in a place as complex as C average middle school, it was impossible to analyze every single thing that happened. Like, what were those little white paper balls that I kept brushing out of my hair every night? Was there so much paper in a school that the molecules eventually clustered and fell like precipitation? And how did a pickled brain and all those other weird objects get into my locker? I thought the whole point of a lock was that no one could open it but me. I sure never put pink goo and a dead bird in there. Rain always recommended meditation for stress and confusion. But if you meditate in front of your locker, someone might steal your sandals while your eyes are closed. I had to go home barefoot on the school bus that afternoon. I know complaining is a negativity trip, but it was hard to stay positive about the floor of a school bus. It's a collecting place for the filthy, smelly, sticky, and often sharp and jagged cast-off of a society run wild. If I'd ever questioned why Rain and her friends gave up on city life in San Francisco and founded Garland back in 1967, five minutes on that bus explained it. The dark underbelly of the human animal was turned loose on that vehicle. It was crowded, noisy, dirty, rowdy, and uncomfortable. People fought, shrieked, threw things at one another, and tormented the hapless driver. It was an insane asylum on wheels. By the time I made it to the Donnelly house, my bruised and bleeding feet were decorated with lollipop sticks, chewing gum, hairs, 
broken soda can tabs, straws, buttons, and some things I couldn't even identify. To make matters worse, Sophie caught me in the backyard hosing off my feet at the outdoor tap. Nice, she muttered, but the thing is, her expression said she didn't think it was nice at all. Lately, every time I talked to Sophie, she looked like she'd just eaten some turnips that had been harvested a week too late. Her face twisted into an unpleasant contortion that made it hard to see how beautiful she was. But I tried my best because I knew about her disappointment over her father and the driving lessons. I realized my good fortune at being raised by Rain, who never broke a promise and never let me down in any way. The more I thought about it, the more I wanted to do something nice for Sophie to make her feel better. But how could that ever happen? Every time I went near her, she practically bit my head off.